a prelude to my message. Barbara and I have a little thing called uh, On the Way Home from Church. Did you see how Jane was dressed today? You know, she really ought to dress more modestly. Maybe God's telling me that I ought to talk to her about the fact that she should be more modest. And did you, did you notice the bulletin had three typos in it? Now, we're supposed to be doing our best for God, and three typos in one bulletin is not our best for God. And then Suzanne, when she was singing, she was off key more than she was on. I think we ought to talk to the planning committee. They need to get better talent up there because we're supposed to give our best for God, not people who are off key. Uh, watch out for that bicycle. Minding the bike. What about those kids in the back? Do you realize how much noise they were making? You would think the parents would realize that it distracts everybody else and get them out of there so that they don't disturb everybody else along the way. And then the organ. Don't they know that when you do praise and worship songs at this point, the organ is passe? We need a bigger, better praise team. On the way out, I saw two women sitting at the, standing at the back, and they were praying. One of them was crying. Now, look, we come to church to worship, not to give emotions and have it be an emotional time. Perhaps we should talk to them. Surely we can get the prayer team around to talk to them and describe what really should happen. And then the, the coffee hour after that, that coffee hour. At the coffee hour, everybody in the place was gossiping. I heard them talking all about themselves, all about their lives, everything that was going on. They were just gossiping like crazy. Well. What did, you think of the, uh, what did you think of the sermon? Uh, the sermon. Uh, what was it about? <laughs> uh, Barbara told me there really weren't three mistakes in the program. Um, but Kaz, fortunately, wasn't here to to hear that because he's up with kids co-op upstairs <laughs> and uh, Sarah does a very fine job. She's not like Susan, whoever Susan is. <laughs> In Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged. Now when you read that, you might be tempted to ask, does that mean that we are not supposed to make judgments about anybody or Anything? Well, no, not hardly, because there are cases in the Bible where we are to make judgments. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself in John 7, 24 said this, Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Jesus, uh, so it is obvious, it seems, that uh, Jesus in Matthew 7, 1 is not making an absolute prohibition against judging. He must be warning us about a certain kind of judging. As with any apparent contradiction in the Bible, we need to ask, in what sense yes and in what sense no? 
So the question then becomes, when should we judge and when should we not judge? Or in what situations is it right to judge and in what situations is it not right to judge? Now the common Greek word for judge in the New Testament is krino, K-R-I-N-O. And as you could guess, it can be translated many different ways. It can mean to distinguish, to consider, to reach a decision, to administer justice, to condemn, to pass judgment upon, uh, to uh, criticize, and even to find fault. So obviously the context must help us decide the meaning. Therefore, based on verses 1 to 6, it was read today of our text and other related passages, I would like to suggest some guidelines for answering the question, when to judge and when not to judge. My first guideline I suggest is this. Do not judge when you have the same problem. I'm speaking here of when we judge a person, which I think is the case in verse 1. When Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged, he goes on to say in verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Commentaries generally uh, see implied in this statement God's judgment. That is, God will judge you in accord with the measure you judge others. And this follows a general principle that's taught in Scripture. And that is, God holds us accountable for our knowledge. When we judge another person, it shows that we have some knowledge, however imperfectly, some knowledge of right and wrong. And God will hold us accountable for that. Those with more knowledge will be more responsible. In another context, Jesus said to the people of Capernaum that it will be more bearable for Sodom in the day of judgment. Why? Because they didn't have knowledge of the Messiah and the great works that Jesus had been doing in Capernaum. And then in verses 3 to 5, Jesus gives this interesting illustration of the speck in your brother's eye and the, and the log or the plank in your own eye. In this colorful and I would say uh, humorous use of hyperbole, he shows how ridiculous it is to point to a fault in someone else when you have the same fault in greater measure. He says in verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? So because of the immediate context, I think we can say that verse 1, in verse 1, Jesus is using the word judge to mean to criticize or to find fault with another person. And when we have the same fault, we become a hypocrite. William Hendrickson says, to be, to be discriminating and critical is necessary, but to be hypocritical is wrong. There are plenty other uses of the word judge in which we are permitted and called upon to judge. But from verse 1, it is in its context, my first suggestion then is do not judge when you have the same problem. Plummer's commentary says, if we know how worthy of blame we ourselves are, 
we should be much less ready to blame others. However, I think this first guideline has to be qualified a bit. Because Jesus goes on in verse 5 and says this, You hypocrite, first take the blank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here Jesus seems to suggest that if you work on getting rid of the particular fault in your own life, you are then better prepared to help others with that fault. Myron Augsburger says, we are the first we are to first judge ourselves and find the correction which God's grace can achieve. Then we will be able to take the speck out of our brother's eye. So the first guideline can be modified to read this way. Do not judge when you have the same problem unless you first work on that problem for yourself. I have an incident from my own life that I think illustrates this principle. A number of years ago, I was a leader of a discussion group in adult Sunday school. Um, it was a class very much like the one that the Corfields now lead in the lounge here. Incidentally, you uh, uh, adults who are not in one of the classes, like Steve's class or another, another class down the hall, um, you don't have to stand there for an hour sipping coffee and talking. Come on into the lounge and share your views because the discussion is about the message of the morning, okay? So if you're interested in this message, go into the lounge. But at any rate, uh, when I had the class several years ago, there was this person that tended to dominate the conversation. And, of course, it upset the other people in the class. And I found as a leader that I had the responsibility to confront this person. But the question was how to do it. Um, well, after the class one Sunday, I took the person aside and I said, you know, I think you and I have the same problem. And the person said, and what is that? I, I said, we both like to talk. And the person smiled a little bit and nodded, which I was grateful because I was afraid I might get slugged. But then I said, I confess that while it is my job to encourage everybody to participate. I have caught myself at times going on with my own ideas and not letting other people have their say. So I've had to work on holding back and listening to others a lot more. The person's response was to admit having the same problem and to commit to working on it. And so my confirmation, my confrontation rather, with this person seemed to work because I was willing to admit the log in my own eye. And I did try to speak uh, gently and lovingly. And that leads me to a, a second suggested guideline. And that is, do not judge if it's not done in love. And I think this is in accord with all that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, some people have a, what's called a censorious, judgmental type nature. They find it very easy to criticize other people and find fault, just like the fictitious woman that my wife portrayed. But of course, she's not like that, right? <coughs> um, but if we, 
if we really feel moved to point out a fault in someone else, we should do it with meekness, tenderness, motivated by a concern to really help the person overcome that fault. In other words, we should do it, we should act in love. Because love seeks the benefit of the other person, as well as ourselves. And that is why William Hendrickson says that both self-discipline and mutual discipline are encouraged in what Jesus says about the speck in the plank. So if you're not going to be helpful, why criticize? Why, why not just keep your mouth shut? Unless you're just trying to blow off steam or something, and that's a matter of self-control. So, yeah, don't do it unless you're acting in love. A third guideline I suggest is this. Do not judge if it is a matter of Christian liberty. Now, for this guideline, I have to leave Matthew 7 and go to other contexts. And let me say a word about what's sometimes called the principle of Christian liberty. This has to do with differences that Christians have over matters which are not necessarily immoral or against God's word. An example of this is where the Apostle Paul uses the word krino in Romans chapter 14, verse 3. He says, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Paul here is saying that when it comes to differences in what we eat, we shouldn't judge each other because it's not a matter that's contrary to God's standard. Paul says a similar thing in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. He states, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I was trying to think of a, a good example from of uh, Christian liberty matters in our own day. And uh, perhaps the differences that Christians have, for example, in whether to drink wine in moderation or not drink at all. I think that it's probably best for us not to judge in such matters. Those who are prone to alcoholism, of course, need a, a different kind of uh, guidance. But there are many examples, I think, we could talk about with this matter of Christian liberty, which we'll discuss when we get into the lounge. My fourth suggested guideline is this. Do judge when discriminating between truth and error is required. Now, this positive use of the word crino, or to judge, is not the same word, not the same meaning as it was back in Matthew 7.1. This is not judging in the sense of criticizing or finding fault. This is judging in the sense of distinguishing, considering, and reaching a decision. It is probably the most common meaning of judge. We judge in this sense perhaps every day. This is the meaning of judge that Jesus uses in John 7, 24 that I referred to earlier where he says, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. The context of this 
statement of Jesus is where the Jews were angry at him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath day. Jesus also uses Crino in Luke 12, 57, where he says, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? The context there was where the crowd was failing to properly determine the present time regarding who Jesus was based on the works that he had been doing. They were to make a judgment about the truth of Jesus, whether he is the Messiah or not. And notice that in each of these two cases, Jesus is appealing to evidence, empirical evidence, if you please, evidence from the senses of what they saw and heard. And from that, they were to use their God-given reason to draw a conclusion about the truth of who Jesus was. And I believe Jesus wants us to do the same thing today, to use our reason to determine the truth and make a judgment call on what the truth is in all manner of issues. And this is especially important, I think, in in the times we live in where it is being challenged as to whether we can even know the truth. We live in an age where one person's view of reality is fake news to another person. But I believe that God has made an orderly and rational world in which it is possible for us to learn the truth, at least to know it in part, if not perfectly. And so I think it is our responsibility to read broadly and educate ourselves to the vital issues of the day and to make a judgment about where the truth lies. This is needful in the area of political issues. We need to become well-informed and judge the issues in accord with the truth of biblical morality. As a political moderate, I myself find myself looking in both directions left and right, and finding some truth in each. When it comes to the pro-life issue, for example, I find the Republican position closer to the truth. But when it comes to taking care of the poor and the underprivileged and welcoming the needy uh, foreigners, I find the Democrat position closer to the truth. These are my views. And you can disagree with them, of course, because this is not our church statement of politics, just my opinion. Of course, I'm not infallible. No one is. But I think that God honors our sincere attempt, at least, to be responsible in our search for the truth and our political views. And speaking of the truth, I think we American Christians should hold our governmental leaders accountable for the way they handle the truth, especially they're often stretching the truth. I have one more suggested guideline, though I suppose there could be many more. This one is related to verse 6, the last verse in today's text. Five then, and last. Do judge when seeking to know when to share your faith and when not to. In verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. It surely is a strange saying, isn't it? 
seems to be out of context with what is before and what is after. One question that arises is how do we understand the phrase, what is sacred? Some think it refers to holy food of some kind. But the common interpretation seems to be that it refers to the gospel, the sacred truth about Christ. D.A. Carson, in, in the Expositor's Bible Commentator, says, what is sacred in Matthew is the gospel of the kingdom. So the aphorism forbids proclaiming the gospel to certain persons designated as dogs and pigs. Carson then goes on to explain that dogs and pigs are, quote, those who have given clear evidences of rejecting the gospel with vicious scorn and hardened contempt. Now, some of us, no doubt, have family members and close friends who have rejected the gospel many times. Now, it's hard for us to view these people, our loved ones, by the analogy of dogs and pigs. But Christ did tell his disciples to shake the dust off of their feet against those who rejected their message. And he also warned them that he was sending them out like wolves, I mean, sheep among wolves. Craig Blomberg says, one must try to discern whether presenting to others that which is holy will elicit nothing but abuse or profanity. After sustained rejection and reproach, it is appropriate to move on to others. Now, what to do with our loved ones who we don't consider dogs or pigs? What would God say to us today for those who have grown hard to the Christian message. Maybe he would say something like this. Don't irritate them with continued attempts to convert them, but just love them and live the gospel truth before them, even without words. Another type of discernment that is required, I think, for us is, has to do with mere acquaintances with whom we have never shared the faith. And the question is, when is the right time? Are they open to discussing matters of faith or religion? Are they devout followers of another religion? Will they rebuff what they view as an attempt on our part to proselytize them? Or do we need, to, do we need more time to become a trusted friend? Will writing a letter at some point help? These and other questions need to be asked as we seek to judge when to share our faith and when not to. And speaking of writing a letter, I suggest that you, if you've never done something like this before, I suggest that you write a letter yourself, to yourself, explaining why you have become, have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Be hard on yourself. Uh, make it as convincing as you can with good evidences and reasons. And if you can do a good job of convincing yourself, God may use you to convince others. In conclusion, then, I leave you with the key biblical truth. Jesus challenges us to use our critical faculties in accord with Scripture to determine when to judge and not to judge.
Amen.